good to be here. Um, I think the last time I was here was how long ago? I can't remember. I just know that I, I came down and preached one Sunday or maybe two Sundays. After that, my wife and I both got COVID, so I couldn't come back. But uh, that's all past us, and it's good to be here. Before we get into God's Word, I just want to say how much I appreciate the worship. Uh, just being able to come together and worship with you as one expression of the body of Christ. And um, I wanted to say a word to Ron. I think your name's Ron, right? Yeah. I appreciated the, mo- the emotion after the song. And you were kind of talking about that. You know, I hope you never lo- lose that, brother. I hope you never lose that. There are songs that I just can't sing, especially if I'm going to get up and preach because they're so filled with emotion for me that my emotions just flow out and come out because I think what you said is true. Uh, We taste heaven just a little bit when we sing certain songs, and it's going to be a different song for different people, different Christians, but when the emotions come, let them flow. I think that's of the Lord, and I appreciated that about you singing this morning. So with that, let's pray, and then after that, we'll get into God's word together, okay? Um, Heavenly Father, I want to come before you and also lift up my heart to you. Um, I do thank you that I could be here and open the word to these dear people. I thank you for the work of grace that you've been doing in this church for a long, 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 long time, and I thank you that that work of grace continues. I thank you for each and every person that's here this morning. I know that we all arrived here according to your plan. I know that you've got something from your word for each and every one of us. If there's someone here that is not yours through Christ, you've got a word for that person or those people as we talk a little bit about the gospel. But you've got words for us as your people too as we talk about developing hearts for worship. And so please illuminate your word, open our hearts, help us have open hearts, give grace that I can teach in a way that's going to please you and glorify your son, but also help your people. And I pray that as I share the word and as you use it to build up your people of faith, that you would use it to build me up too, so that together we can be strengthened our mutual faith. So we commit our time to you. Guide us now. Have your way. It's a delight to worship you because of who you are. And we pray that this worship would continue as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a long, long, long time ago, and every time I say that, I'm tempted to say in a galaxy far, far away for the Star Wars fans, but I'm not going to say that. A long, 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 long time ago, there was a singer. His name was Matt uh, Redmond, and he released a song that some here might be familiar with, um, and which we used to sing at West Hills. We don't sing it too much anymore. When I tell you what the song is, you may say, yeah, we used to sing that, or you may still sing it, but the name of that song was titled, The Heart of Worship, The Heart of Worship. And while I'm not going to try to sing it to you, I don't think that that would be profitable. The first lyric and chorus goes like this. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth, 
that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. And then the chorus goes like this. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And then the chorus says, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And that's about as complicated as the song gets. Do you remember this song? You sung it here. You used to sing it here at Grace Church. The song is quite simple in and of itself, but the message of the song is really powerful because it touches on a reality that all of us as Christ followers face day after day, week after week, month after month. Because in the midst of our hustle bustle life, it is so, so very easy to lose what this songwriter called the heart of worship. And it's not anything unique to us in the 21st century. Um, if you read the, first, the second and third chapter of Revelation, you'll read the seven letters that Christ wrote to the, ch the churches in Asia Minor. And that first letter is written to the church at Ephesus. I believe it's chapter two, verses one through seven or one through eight. And the big issue that Jesus had with that church even though that congregation had a lot of things right and were doing much that were right before the Lord, is that they had lost the heart of worship. And the way that that came out was that Jesus said to that congregation, you've done all these good things, but I have one thing against you. You have lost your first love. And to lose our first love is to lose our heart of worship. And so the song touches on a common problem that all of us as Christians face, um, it's easy to lose a heart of worship, but it also begs the question, what does a heart of worship, a heart that understands that it is all about you, Jesus, look like? How does that flesh out? What does worship from the heart look like? And this is such a very, very good question because we can easily lose a heart of worship. And so this is a great question to ask for you who are not Christians, if any of you are not Christians. And the reason I say that is because everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. So you may have a heart of worship, it's just in the wrong direction. And so if you're a narcissist, you worship yourself. If you're a miser, you worship the money you try to save and hoard. If you're climbing a corporate ladder or trying to see whatever employment you have um, turn into a goal mine for you, you may worship that. You may worship a relationship you're in. Everybody worships something. And so if you're not a believer today, tune in to me because my hope is that you would be able to shift the object of your worship off what you worship and onto who deserves all the worship in the world, all the worship in the universe. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, the triune God. But it's also relevant for Christians. 
because I think our world tries to militate against that heart. And so tune in as we move forward. Now, our scripture today is John chapter 12, 1 through 8. And so if you've got your Bible hard copy or electronic, scroll or turn there. And if you don't have a copy of the scripture, that's okay. I'm going to walk through this text with you. And this scripture is ideal because it reveals to us in the life of a woman what a heart of worship really looks like. And so let's read the scripture together. Let's all stand and we'll read John chapter 12. Now what I'm going to do is rewind into the 55th verse of chapter 11 and then I'll go down through the 8th verse of chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover... Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now let's talk a little bit about the setting. The setting for this scene in the life of Jesus is in between two major events of Jesus' life. There was a past event. And there was a future event. The past event, which is recorded in chapter 11, was that Jesus raised the brother of the two women in this section of scripture from the dead. His name was Lazarus. And Lazarus had been dead four days. And Jesus came and raised him from the dead. That was the past event. And that past event resulted in his enemies plotting a double murder because they realized that that miracle was so powerful that if they didn't stop Christ, the whole nation would follow him. And so they began to plot his death. And Lazarus was the evidence of the power Christ had. And so if you keep reading in John 12, you'll find that they also started plotting Lazarus' death. 
What do you do when somebody like Jesus comes along and raises somebody from the dead that's been dead four days and everybody in the country's talking about it? Well, you try to get rid of the evidence. And so the raising of Lazarus was the past event. The future event was that Christ was on his way to Jerusalem for his final week on earth before he was crucified. And so the event in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, takes place. It's sandwiched between those two major events. Sandwiched between those two major events. And how could that not be the occasion for a joy-filled celebration? And that's what we've got in the first two verses. Uh, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. So he's at a dinner party. And that dinner party was fitting because of what had happened. That's the scene. Now, those attending the dinner were reclining around the table. And in first century Israel, when you gathered for dinner, that's the way that you gathered. The tables were often very low, and those that were going to eat at the table would recline around the table. And the way that you would be situated would be that you would perhaps be leaning on your left elbow and your legs would be extended out behind you and the table would be in front of you and you would be able to eat your food. And so that's the scene that's being described. Um, They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And so Lazarus' feet are extended behind. And in the midst of this dinner party, Martha's sister, Mary, performs an act which to many would be viewed as unthinkable perhaps, but to everybody it was an act that was absolutely, totally, positively extraordinary. What did she do? She took a pound of expensive ointment. Now, ESV says pound, a New International Version translates the same Greek word as pint. That gives a better description of how much ointment she had. So we know what a pint is. If we had a pint carton or a pint jar and it was full of liquid, that's how much ointment Mary had when she comes and she anoints the feet of Jesus. She takes a pound of expensive ointment made of pure spikenard. Now, spikenard was an ointment that would be imported. Spikenard was made from a certain plant that was only found in northern India, which means that that spikenard had either been imported and then purchased by Mary or her family, or she had it for some other reason. It was a very expensive ointment, an imported ointment, a very sweet-smelling ointment, and she anointed Jesus' feet. And then she let her hair down and wiped his feet with her hair. Verse 3 says, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now what she showed, by doing what she did, is that Jesus was worthy enough, and he is worthy enough to be extravagantly anointed as king, prophet, priest, but also as one who was soon going to go to his death. And so he was worthy to be extravagantly anointed, 
as king, prophet, priest, and loving enough to be anointed as God's lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And that's actually the main point of the event that takes place in these eight verses of chapter 12. Jesus went to the cross as the lamb of God, and he did that to take away your sins and my sins, to take away the sins of all who would believe upon him. So Mary anoints him. And as I said, that's the main idea. And when we study this woman's life, we actually see several qualities, several qualities from her life that shows that she had a heart of worship. And that's what caused her to do what she did toward Jesus. And so who is this woman, Mary? Well, in Scripture, there are actually six different Marys. This is just kind of a side note bit of information. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was one of the Marys. And then another Mary that we all know about was Mary Magdalene. And there was also a Mary, the mother of John. And then there was also a Mary, the wife of Clopas, And then if you get into the book of Acts, there was another Mary who was called the mother of John Mark, but this Mary is not any of those Marys. This Mary is known as Mary of Bethany, and that's because it was Bethany, verse 1, where she and her sister and Lazarus lived. And so we're talking about Mary of Bethany, and it was Mary of Bethany who anointed Jesus at the dinner party. And so how does Mary's life And how do her actions model for us a heart of worship? Well, I'm going to go back into Luke and then get back into our text and give you several illustrations of what a heart of worship looks like from her life. And first of all, we meet Mary and Martha if we read through Luke's gospel in chapter 10, verse 39. And in chapter 10, verse 39, we see that she was a learner of Jesus. She was a learner of Jesus. If you're not familiar with that story, it's the story of where Jesus goes to visit Mary and Martha in their home, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, learning of him, and Martha is distracted with much serving. And some of us could relate to Mary, and some of us could relate to Martha, some of you ladies. Martha was really, really concerned that All of the serving was right. She has a special guest, Jesus, and she wants to get that right. Hospitality was a big deal in the first century. And so she comes in and says, Lord, tell Mary to come help me. Because she's doing all the work, and Mary's doing all the learning. And if you know the story, Jesus says, Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things. But Mary has sought the better part. And it will not be deprived her. It will not be taken away from her. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus as a learner of Jesus. Now listen. If we're going to maintain a heart of worship, we have to be learners of Jesus. We have to be learners of Jesus. And a person first becomes a learner of Jesus when he or she is born again by the Spirit of God. That's the divine work. And the response of a person is that that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we have our sins forgiven and we're justified by God. That is, God declares us righteous based on the merits of Christ. And we come into a relationship with God the Father. And then we become learners of Jesus. No one who is not a learner of Jesus will ever develop a heart of worship for God the Father through Jesus, his Son. And so that's where Mary's heart of worship started. She was a learner of Jesus. And that's in the 39th verse of Luke 10. Now in Luke 10, 41, it shows that she prioritized being with Jesus. And that's where Jesus spoke to Martha and said, listen, she's desired the better part, and that's not going to be taken away from her. Jesus had come to her house, and she recognized who he was. And her devotion to Jesus caused her to do what she did, but her devotion to Jesus got her in trouble a little bit with her sister Martha on that occasion, but her heart of worship was coming out. Her heart of worship was coming out, and the Lord recognized that. Now, some of you may say, with my busy life, I am more like Martha than Mary. How can this work for me? And that's a good question. When Mary sat at Jesus' feet, he was physically present in Mary's house. And I suspect that if he came to your house some mid-afternoon and you're a mom with a bunch of kids um, and you've really got a connection, you might do what Mary did. You might say, kids, come around. We're going to sit down at Jesus' feet and we're going to learn. You might do that. You might be saying, yeah, if I had been in that context and Jesus was here personally, that's what I would have done. And the Lord knows that that's what you would have done, but he's not here physically. And so how then do we apply this action of Mary. Well, let me try to explain it to you. And it's really, really simple. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is filled with the story of Jesus Christ. And those four gospels are filled with the teachings and the words of Christ. John alone has amazing things to to say about Christ. There are seven statements where Jesus says, quote, I am, and then he says what he is. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seven statements that just say who Jesus is. The I am statements. Memorize one of them. Memorize seven of them. Memorize other of the teachings of Jesus. And after you memorize them, go over them enough to where they're internalized in your heart. It can just be one verse, one simple verse. And you internalize God's word. And as you internalize it, you turn it into prayer. And then, regardless of how busy you might be in your day, you can connect with God the Father, your heart to his, through Jesus who you have a relationship with, just by meditating on and praying through that verse. That's one way. That's one way that you put your feet, self at the feet of Jesus as a learner and prioritize being with him. The interesting thing is, I used to do that as a truck driver. After I got out of the service and came to know Jesus, I was a truck driver for a while. I drove tractor trailers I drove tractor trailers during the summer, but I made sure to get another job before the winter came because I wasn't confident enough to be driving a big rig in the wintertime. But listen, I had become a Christian, 
And I used to memorize scripture when I was a brand new Christian. And it was amazing. I could be driving down the street, concentrating on what I was doing, going over in my heart and mind verses I'd memorized and praying them back to God. And that's one of the privileges we have as followers of Jesus Christ. We've got his spirit living in our hearts. We've got his word in our minds. And we can connect to him heart to heart right where we are. You can be in the midst of your family room if you're a mom that stays home and you've got a number of little ones, one or two or five or seven. And you can connect to Christ in the same way that Mary was connecting to Christ. It's really just that simple. You take the time to think on these verses and pray them and worship from them, your heart to his. And I read an interesting quote in one of the commentaries that I've got. It's a commentary on John by R. Kent Hughes. And he spoke about a sign that he saw one time hanging over a kitchen sink. And the sign said this, divine service held here three times a day. What does that communicate? That whoever took care of the dishes or the cooking at that sink three times a day knew that they could wash dishes and clean up after meals or prepare food to the glory of Christ, heart to heart with God the Father. That's something of what a heart of worship looks like. Mary was a learner of Jesus, and she prioritized being with him, but now jumping back to John chapter 12, to do that, she had humbled herself at Jesus' feet. And part of us being people with hearts of worship is that we come to Christ with humble hearts and we are humbling ourselves before him in our lives. Anyone with a heart of worship does the same. And verse three tells us that she did it liberally and literally. She therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Now, anointing in the ancient world and in the Old Testament was always done by the people of God to set a person apart for some special task or some special office. And so kings were installed and anointing took place. 1 Samuel 12, 13 gives us the story about David being anointed by Samuel. Priests were set apart through anointing. And so in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 41, we read the account of Aaron and his sons being anointed as the first priest of Israel. Prophets were also sometimes anointed. And so if you jump into 1 Kings 19 and read the 16th verse, you'll see that Elijah actually anointed his successor, Elisha, with oil, commissioning him to be the prophet in his, Elijah's place. And so that was, those, those were some of the reasons why anointing took place. But anointing also was done in preparation for burial. And Mary's anointing symbolized all of the reasons that people were anointed. But Jesus was going to die. And when she anointed his feet... And Judas said what he said about what she did. Jesus 
took her anointing in relation to his soon burial. That's verse 8. He tells Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And so a heart of worship is seen as we are learners of Jesus. A heart of worship is seen as we prioritize being with Jesus. A heart of worship is seen as we humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ. But because she was extravagantly devoted to Jesus, her act of worship was extravagant too, verse 3. And a heart of worship will often be seen through extravagant worship. Through extravagant worship. She takes a pint of this expensive oil and anoints her feet with what amounted to a week's wage. And so if you want to do an equivalency comparison between how much that pint of pure nard was worth then versus today, how much money do you make if you're a worker in a single week? What's your weekly salary? Some of you make more, some of you make less. In Jesus' day, the cost of that nard was worth the weekly salary of a blue-collar worker. Now, my son was and is a blue-collar worker. He was an electrician. He's a journeyman electrician before he went into gospel ministry. I have an idea of what he made in a week. You take what he made in the course of however many hours he worked, and that's how much this ointment was worth. It was an extravagant expression of worship. That pint of oil like this was usually only possessed by the well-to-do, but she had it, and she used it to honor Christ. And then in addition to that, she let down her hair and wiped her feet with her hair. Now, what in the world was that about? Well, that was an action that could be very much misunderstood because in the ancient world, sometimes when a woman let down her hair, that action was read as having sexual connotations. But that wasn't the only reason that a woman might let down her hair. In the ancient world, women sometimes also let down their hair as a sign of extreme gratitude and an expression of great, great, great humility. And that's what Mary's doing here. She is expressing extreme gratitude from a position of great, great, great humility. What was she so grateful about? Well, on the surface, Jesus had raised her brother Lazarus from the dead after four days. But her extravagant love for Christ went so, so, so much deeper than that. She understood who this Jesus was. She understood who this man that had come to dinner was. Beyond his miraculous power. She understood what his miraculous power that enabled him to raise Jesus or Lazarus from the dead after four days meant. That he was the Christ. That he was the Lord of glory. That he was the son of the living God. She got it. And so she's expressing deep gratitude 
And so by letting down her hair, she wasn't interacting with Jesus as a woman to a man. She was interacting with Jesus as a woman deeply in love with Jesus the Christ to her king, to her God, to her Lord. That's what she was expressing. That's what she was expressing. And so she knelt face down at at his feet and she anointed his feet with the, the oil and she wiped his feet with her hair. And that sweet perfume filled the room. And that was the ultimate expression of how she had fully, 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 fully devoted herself from the heart to this man who was Jesus the Christ. That's what she was expressing. Now listen, Scripture is filled with examples of extravagant expressions of worship. Whether David dancing in his ephod before the Ark of the Covenant, or Zacchaeus giving away a good portion of his fortune because Jesus had come to his house and he realized who Jesus was and he believed. Scripture is filled with extravagant examples of worship, but church history is as well. Um, One of my favorite missionary stories is the story of Eric Liddell. Anybody know who he is? Okay, for those of you who don't, do you remember the old movie, Chariots of Fire? All right, Chariots of Fire was the story of Eric Liddell. He was a Scottish Christian and a missionary, but he was an Olympian in the Olympics that took place in Nazi Germany in the early 30s before Hitler launched World War II. And as a Christian... He was also a Sabbatarian, which means that as a Scottish Presbyterian, he viewed the worship on the Lord's Day as sacred, as the Christian Sabbath, and he did not want to violate it. It was dedicated in his life to the worship of God and rest. And so when he was at these Olympic Games, they scheduled him to run a race on a Sunday, and he refused. Now, his refusal could be called extravagant. It went against the grain. And the whole of the British Olympic team committee came together to try to convince him that he had to run on Sunday. And he dug his heels in and no way he was going to do it. He wasn't going to do it. And they could not convince him by hook or by crook. No way was he going to do it. And finally, one of the men that was there the Prince of Wales put two and two together and figured out the solution. And the Prince of Wales realized that the motivating issue, authority, power of Eric Liddell's life was his connection with God the Father. And you couldn't divorce his commitment to worship on the Sabbath from his ability to run. And the Prince of Wales explained that, and they changed his heat. And he didn't have to run on Sunday, and he won the gold. Why? Because he was in love with God, and he took an extravagant stand of worship, and the Lord honored it. I have a friend, and he and his wife 
out of love for Christ, literally sold his entire estate and then gave all the money away in order to purchase a piece of property in Zambia outside of Lusaka for the sake of the church and so that the church of Jesus Christ there could hold pastors, retreats, and conferences and camps for little children. He gave his whole fortune away, an extravagant offering of worship. Hearts of worship sometimes perform the extravagant for Christ, but extravagant worship is not always seen in something external, like Eric Liddell's stand, or like my friend selling all of his fortune and giving it away. Sometimes extravagance in worship is seen in secret. So when I was growing up in my home church, um, I became a Christian when I was in the 10th grade, and there were these two ladies in our church, and all I knew them by, because we were from the South and you never knew anybody's first name if they were an adult and they were older than you, and one of them was Miss Jeannie and the other one was Miss Toneth, right? And there were these elderly ladies. They were elderly when I met them as a 10th grader, and when I came home out of the Marine Corps many years later, they were even more elderly, but they were still there. Um, and they wore those little black shoes that elderly women used to wear in the South, all the time and gray hair and pulled back in a bun. And if you were to see them in our local church, you might just say, they're just senior, senior, senior citizens. Probably don't have much to contribute. You know, they both went home to be with the Lord. Mrs. Donath particularly is an example of extravagant, extraordinary worship. Because when my pastor and some of the staff went over to collect her special effects and to close down her apartment because she had reached the age where none of her relatives had survived her, what they found when they went into her back rooms was that there was not a piece of wall that was not covered all the way around the room with prayer letters and missionary pictures and prayer requests? How was she extraordinary in worship? She had given her life in secret to pray and to pray and to pray and to pray and to worship and to worship and to worship and to worship. And nobody knew it. Extravagant worship. My pastor said that when she passed away, his was the loss and hers was the gain. Because the number one prayer for he and his ministry had passed off the scene. Hearts of worship sometimes worship extravagantly, externally or in secret. Uh, here's a fifth um, quality. Her heart of worship filled the whole house with the fragrance of the perfume. And in a non-physical way, when a person is wholly devoted to Christ with a heart filled with worship, as she or he grows in worship and goes deeper and deeper and broader and broader, worshiping the Lord, so very often there's a savor upon that person's life and you can't necessarily define it. My wife and I had 
a friend of ours talked to us about this one time. And he was talking about being in the presence of people who had gone the depths with Christ. And how being in their presence, there was just this sweet perfume. Not literal perfume, but there was just something about him. And we asked him to explain, what do you mean? And he said, I can't really explain it. He said, you know, it's something that you taste. You know, you can take honey and you can taste it. And sometimes a person has such a presence of Christ upon them that that's the way that it is. And when they come into a situation, when they're talking to a person, when they're hanging out with little children, when they're doing whatever they're doing, there's a savor about them that you can't put into words, but which you might feel, you might experience. And so often when that happens, because it really is the sweetness that comes from a holy life, a life wholly devoted to Christ, a life set apart from him, that it brings blessing and peace to others and creates an atmosphere of peace wherever they might be. You know what, brothers and sisters, that's something to aspire to. It's something we cannot produce. Only Christ can. But, oh, that we would aspire to being that type person. I remember a story that Oswald J. Sanders told. You might not know who he was. Um, When I became a pastor at West Hills, he was in his 90s. He was a missionary statement. He passed away shortly after that. But he told the story of being in a situation with one of his friends and this little kid and his father were there and the parents and the guy was interacting. And after they left, the little boy looked up to his father and said, Dad, who was that that you were talking to? Was that Jesus? Why would he say that? It was a spiritual thing. And exuded out. He was a man who had gone deeper in a heart of worship. Let me give you another one. Mary illustrates the fact that often when someone has a heart of worship, their acts of worship will be criticized by those who do not have hearts of worship. That happens a lot. That happens a lot. There's an example of it in our text. Take a look. Take a look. Take a look at verse 4. So Mary takes this expensive ointment, anoints Jesus' feet with it, lets her hair down, wipes his feet with her hair. The fragrance of the perfume fills the room, and then Judas Iscariot speaks up. And that's what we're told. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said something very, very spiritual. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor. What a contrast that we have between Mary on the one hand and Judas on the other hand. Some have said that Judas was an example of false worship, and so this story contrasts true and false worship. And I would say this, there is some truth in that, because Judas surely was not a worshiper of the Christ. Uh, Judas was a worshiper of something else, and so when you look at what he worshiped, that would be an example of a a false worship. But I would take it a little bit deeper than that. I don't think it's fully accurate. I would say that Judas Iscariot was no worshiper at all. 
And the reason that I would say that is, say that is this. A worshiper is a giver. A worshiper of God is a giver. A worshiper of God is a person who regularly offers up sacrifices of praise to the Lord, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. And we can offer up the sacrifice of praise to the Lord, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name, when everything's going wonderfully well and when we're right in the middle of the worst trial we could ever have imagined facing if we have a heart of worship. And so a true worshiper is a giver, and often as we give, give, give back to God the praise due his name, that also ushers out, and we give, give, give to his people as well. Because giving to his people, serving his people, blessing other people, blessing those who are not his people, those are spiritual acts of worship, if I'm reading Romans 12, 1 and 2 right. So Judas wasn't a worshiper. Judas was not a giver. He was a taker. He was in it to take what he could get. He was in it for his own gain. But despite his outward appearance, he looked really good. You know, he did everything that the other 11 apostles did. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He preached the good news. He had a false heart. And he wasn't a worshiper. Not of Christ. Not of Christ. He hasn't had another focus and if you study Judas, you learn that he had a heart of covetousness. Uh, he wanted what was, wasn't, wasn't his. And so his covetousness led him to thievery. And that's mentioned here. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. He didn't care about the poor. Because to give to the poor, you get nothing in return. He cared about the money in the bag. And he had a heart of covenants that led to thievery, verse 6, and that would eventually lead to the betrayal of the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. And that's where sin always leads us, isn't it? It leads us to death. It leads to destruction. That's who Judas was. Mary came under fire from Judas. But she didn't care. So a quick question, are you a Mary or are you a Judas today? Uh, some of us are like Mary, others might be like Judas. Uh, Mary was criticized by Judas for her extravagant worship, but she wasn't hindered. Why? Because hers was a heart of worship, and she was connected to the Son of God. And so she just was who she was, and she just did what she did. And finally, there was a foundation Everything that Mary did, foundational to Mary's actions was her heart. She had a heart of true worship for Christ. She was fully devoted to Jesus from the heart and fully in love with him, her king. And all true worship flows from that. All true worship flows from that. And so what happens in the story? Jesus commends Mary. And Jesus rejects the proposal of Judas. And so the question is, do you have a heart of worship like Mary? How does one develop a heart of worship like Mary? Well, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, you've never come to the place where you put faith in Jesus Christ 
realizing that your sins have separated between you and God, then you will never, ever, ever, ever develop a heart of worship until you're born again by the Spirit of God. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, unless a woman is born again, he or she cannot see the kingdom of God, nor can they enter it. And so believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. The first act of humility for any person is to realize that their sins have separated between them and God, that they are sinners before a holy and righteous God, that their sins are going to bring his wrath upon them in the end. That's going to result in eternal separation from him in a place called hell. And they realize because they sin against this holy God who has been nothing but good to them that they deserve it. And that Jesus came and lived and died and rose so that they wouldn't have to receive what they deserved. And then through faith in Christ, they're forgiven and saved. So if you're not a Christian, that's where it would start. You have to be born again. But then if you are a Christian, how do we go deeper and deeper in this heart of worship? Well, first of all, be honest and confess that you're not quite where Mary was. Um, It takes humility to confess who you really are. You might even confess it to brothers and sisters in Christ. They may or may not know it, but I guarantee you the Father does. And so it's no big loss to confess to the Father what he already knows about you. And that's where it would start. Uh, When I'm not really tuned into worship, I have to confess that to God. I have to confess that to God. And I just lay it out before him. My heart's not tuned today. My heart wasn't tuned last week. Please, please, please be merciful to me and help me. Um, um, Ask Jesus by his spirit to create in you more and more and more and more of a heart of worship. Because ultimately that's what the spirit does in the hearts of those who have been born again. Take time to know Jesus. Take time to know God. Some people will say, well, I was born again 10 years ago, and that's when I came to know God. Okay, that's cool. When I came to Christ, that's when I came to know God. In other words, that's when I and God through Christ were first introduced. But as Christians... Shouldn't we go on and get to know God more and more and more and more and Christ more and more and more and more? Absolutely. How do we do that? Get into the Gospels. Get into the Psalms. Get into the Old Testament. Get into the letters. Get into the Word. You say, well, I don't have time to get into the Word a lot. I'm not a scholar. Neither were any of the original disciples except for Paul. Take it one verse at a time, brothers and sisters. Get into the word. Take time to know Jesus. Um, Here's a fourth thing. Expect, expect, expect answer to your desire. Expect, expect, expect answer to your desire. Jesus gave gave a promise. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to he who seeks finds, and to them that knock it shall be opened. And so if you're asking and seeking and knocking, that God create in you a deeper and broader heart of worship, I promise you, he will. Now his method, it might not be super cool, because he uses the good times and he uses our trials. 
But expect, expect, expect answer to your desire. Um, Take every opportunity then to worship him. Privately, publicly, by yourself, with your family. Worship as much as you can. You say, well, sometimes I don't feel like worship. I heard the stanza to another song, and I'm going to read it to you. This stanza to this particular song, and the name of the song is Worthy of My Song, goes like this. I'm going to sing till my heart starts changing. Oh, I'm going to worship till I mean every word, because the way I feel and the fear I'm facing doesn't change who you are or what you deserve. When you don't feel it, especially, that's when Christ wants you to worship. And I believe developing a heart of worship should be the aspiration of every Christian in response to God's grace, his marvelous grace. Now, some of that comes naturally when we come to know Christ. And then for us to continue to grow in our hearts of worship, is going to take time over our lives as we mature. But the Father seeks those who are going to worship him in spirit and truth. And he delights when we want to be that. And so pursue him. Let's close in prayer. I want to thank you, Father, that we could be together today. I thank you for the opportunity to come and be with these dear ones and to open your word and I want to thank you for each and every person here. Some of them I know, some of them I don't, but Father, I do know that so many of them love you and they've stood fast and held firm to you through the ups and downs of church life here in Hollister and through some of the grievous trials of life. And I just pray that you would take what's been spoken now and seal it to all of our hearts. Give all of us as your people the aspiration to go deeper and broader with hearts of worship for you, Lord Jesus. And as we do, may you anoint us with the sweet savor of your presence, not only as a church, but as individual Christians. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I understood Mike correctly, I do believe that I'm supposed to dismiss everybody. So let's all stand together. And I'll just give a benediction. Father, I pray that as each person goes from here who belong to you, that you would so work in our lives that in the coming week, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable to you, O Lord, because you're our king, you're our prince, you're our redeemer. Make it so by your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.